I want, I want, I want me, 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 mine, 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 now, now, now. You know you're responsible for what you hear. You know you're responsible for what you hear. and welcome to Thoughts from Meharry Head, the weekly podcast where I talk about, well, whatever happens to be bouncing around inside my head at the moment, but mostly focusing on constitutional issues and political decentralization. This is episode 62 of Thoughts from Meharry Head, and I appreciate you tuning in. This week, I'm going to talk about states' rights. this term states' rights thrown around a lot, and quite honestly, I'm not really sure most people really understand what it means, or I don't know if it even really has a a set meaning in today's political discourse. Uh, I think a lot of people view it as shorthand. Uh, You know, you say states' rights, uh, a lot of people will think limited government. Um, Of course, a lot of people, when you say states' rights, they're going to immediately think that you're a racist and label you a neo-Confederate, whatever in the world that's supposed to be. But the term states' rights, really, what does it mean? Now, I have to be honest with you. I don't particularly like the term because, I mean, how does a state have a right, right? I mean, a geographical area, rights are for human beings, they're for people. So what do we mean by this term, states' rights? Now, in last week's episode, I talked about the concept of sovereignty and who has the uh, final say, the final authority in the political system. And I talked about how the real American Revolution wasn't the war, but it was a revolution in thought. And I talked about how the American conception of who holds the final authority, who is sovereign in the political system began to change. They realized that government isn't the boss of us, that we are the boss of government. Now, in the American conception, sovereignty rests in the people. And if you haven't listened to last week's episode, I encourage you to do so because it will help you understand better what we're talking about today. And I'll link to that episode in the show notes. So if we understand that sovereignty rests in the people, it still leaves a question open. How do the people express and exercise that sovereignty? How do they express and exercise the power that they innately hold? In the popular conception in America, it's the whole people of the United States that are sovereign, all 320 million of us. Now, this isn't a new concept. Joseph Story actually popularized it uh, in his Commentaries on the Constitution of the United States, which was published in 1833. Basically, he held this idea that there was one American people and that this one American people formed the Union. He wrote in his uh, commentaries, it is an act of the people and not of the states in their political capacities. 
Now, like I said, this isn't a new idea, and it really didn't originate with story. This is the nationalist conception that really is rooted in people like Alexander Hamilton, uh, John Marshall, then it goes through Story and Abraham Lincoln. It's the idea of one people, one nation. And, and I talked about the idea of one nation uh, a few episodes back. I'll link to that one as well. Uh, America is not one nation. This simply isn't true. Now, in order to express their sovereignty, people enter into what we call political societies. This is how they exercise their sovereignty. And in America, the states have always defined the political society. There never has been an entire nation. There never was a time when the entire nation was the political society. It's always been the states. Abel P. Upshur was a Virginia jurist, and he wrote a brilliant refutation of Judge Story's commentaries and completely obliterated this idea that one American people created the United States. Of course, we don't get to hear about Upshur today because, well, Lincoln won the Civil War, so we're stuck with this one-nation narrative. That's the accepted position. But Abel Upshur's arguments were iron tight. He wrote, The great effort of Judge Story throughout the entire work is to establish the doctrine that the Constitution of the United States is a government of the people of the United States, as contradistinguished from the people of the several states, or in other words, that it is a consolidated and not a federative system. His construction of every contested federal power depends mainly upon this distinction, and hence the necessity of establishing oneness among the people of the several colonies prior to the Revolution. But Story has a big problem. This oneness never existed. Upshur went on to write, These colonial governments were clothed with the sovereign power of making laws and of enforcing obedience to them from their own people. The people of one colony owed no allegiance to the government of any other colony and were not bound by its laws. They were separate and distinct in their creation, separate and distinct in the changes and modifications of their governments, which were made from time to time, separate and distinct in political functions, in political rights, and in political duties. Upshur's argument is, well, it's not arguable. The colonies were separate political societies from the time of their formation. One didn't depend on the other. They weren't one American people. So the question that's left to the people that want to argue that, that we are one American people, that it's one nation, the question that they have to answer is when did this ever change? When did these separate colonies, these separate political societies merge into one people? Now, some people will try to argue that it was during the Revolutionary War, but that's not true. The colonies voted on and declared independence from England as individual states, operating through the Continental Congress that was created by the states, with the representatives chosen by those states. Ask yourself this question. Would a colony that didn't sign the Declaration of Independence have been obligated to go to war with Great Britain? If Rhode Island had decided we don't want independence, we want to remain loyal to England, would they have had to go to war because the other colonies voted to? Certainly not. So let's move to the end of the Revolutionary War. When the Treaty of Paris was signed, England recognized 13 individual states, not one American nation. When the colonists formalized their union under the Articles of Confederation, they expressly maintained state sovereignty. The articles say each state retains its sovereignty, freedom, and independence. 
And finally, the Constitution itself was ratified through state conventions by delegates elected by the people of each individual state. It was the same union as under the Articles of Confederation. They called it a more perfect union, but they didn't change the nation of the union. And a state was not bound to the Constitution until after it ratified. By the time Rhode Island ratified the Constitution and sent representatives to Congress, the vast majority of the population of the United States was represented by the Union. So why wasn't Rhode Island forced in if it was one American people? Because it wasn't. It was the act of the individual states, the political societies. Madison explained the nature of the federal government in Federalist 36. He said, each state in ratifying the Constitution is considered a sovereign body independent of all others, and only to be bound by its own voluntary act. In this relation, the new Constitution will, if established, be a federal, not a national Constitution. But again, it's important to understand that we're talking about the people of the states. That's what we mean by states. This issue actually came up when Madison wrote the Virginia Resolutions and asserted that states have the authority to interpose to stop the general government from exercising undelegated powers. In his defense of his resolutions, known as the Report of 1800, Madison fleshes out this idea of states. Listen carefully to what he said. It is indeed true that the term states is sometimes used in a vague sense and sometimes in different senses according to the subject to which it is applied. Thus, it sometimes means the separate sections of the territory occupied by the political societies within each, sometimes the particular governments established by those societies, sometimes those societies as organized into those particular governments, and lastly, it means the people composing those political societies in their highest sovereign capacity. In the present instance, Whatever different construction of the term states in the resolution may have been entertained, all will at least concur in the last mentioned, because in that sense, the Constitution was submitted to the states, in that sense, the states ratified it, and in that sense, the term states, they are consequently parties to the compact from which the powers of the federal government result. In other words, the powers of the federal government flow from the people of the states, the people composing those political societies in their highest sovereign capacity. So that's what we mean when we say states' rights. We don't mean that the geographical area of Massachusetts has rights or even that its government has rights. We mean that the people of that state, the political society that is Massachusetts, is ultimately sovereign in the system. They delegated power to the federal government, and they have the authority to take it back. Well, that's it for this episode of Thoughts from Meharry Head. We're another 10 minutes closer to freedom. I really appreciate you listening. If you enjoyed the show, do me a favor and spread the word. And feel free to send me any thoughts or ideas at michael.meharry at 10thamendmentcenter.com. And if you haven't done so already, head over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast for free. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.